It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, October 14, 2020. On today's episode, Quebec notary Liat Lev-Ari is here to answer some questions about living wills. To introduce her, here is Danielle Belanger of the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here we are with Liat Lev-Ari, who will speak to you about living wills. Here she is, Liat. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm, I apologize also for the slight delay. Um, my name is Liat Levari. I'm a notary. I'm a notary here in Quebec and a lawyer in Israel, so I've had many years of different experiences in different domains of the law. So my my main purpose today is to speak to you about uh, living wills and mandates, and also to give you the, the differences between power of attorneys and mandate. So in Quebec, a power of attorney is a document that a person signs while they are well of mind, sound of mind, and they would like to name somebody else to help them um, do anything that they want to do. So for example, uh, those things can relate to property. If I'm at home and it's winter and I don't feel like going outside because it's too cold or because I'm afraid that uh, it's too icy, I can give my husband or my daughter or my friend or my neighbor a power of attorney enabling them to go to the bank and make deposits and uh, make withdrawals and pay my bills and uh, speak to Revenue Quebec and speak to Revenue Canada and uh, speak to the insurance agency and do everything and anything that I do not want to do or cannot do myself because of health reasons. That's a power of attorney. Technically, a power of attorney ceases to exist the moment the person loses the ability to make decisions for themselves. So if a doctor says, you know what, Liat is no longer able to make decisions because she had a stroke or uh, she had uh, an aneurysm or if she has advanced dementia and she's no longer able to make decisions, not for her property and not for her person. And uh, it's better to have somebody else appointed to do those uh, things for her, to make those health decisions, to make those uh, property decisions. If, if uh, Liat needs to rent uh, um, a bed, if Liat needs to be moved to a residence, then somebody else has to do it because you yourself, the person has lost the ability to do it. So until the banks found out about it, it takes time and technically the person can still uh, continue to use the power of attorney. But once the doctor declared a person inept, then the power of attorney ceases to exist or should cease to exist. And instead, we want to see if the person has a protection mandate that they sign. If they do have it, we have to go through a process called homologation. And in that process, at the end of the day, we can um, we can get a judgment from court saying, Riyadh has appointed her husband to make all those decisions for her. So please, court, uh, give us the judgment that enables uh, her husband to make all the decisions about her property and all the decisions about her health. So what is uh, the mandate? So this is the mandate, but people call many times living will. Living will is what people call a mandate, but it's not necessarily the entire document. Living will only pertains to a certain aspect of the mandate, and that says in the event that you're at an end of life situation, are you able to make decisions for yourself? No, because you lost your ability. So if you can't make the decisions 
for yourself. Who will make the decisions for you? Do you want to be kept alive on a ventilator? Do you want to be artificially hydrated? Do you want to be artificially fed? Do you want to be um, subject to operation and surgery that may or may not improve your life and could even leave you in a vegetative state? Do you want to have chemotherapy? Those elements are the living will of the mandate. Some people choose to have them and some people choose to not have them. Some people say, I am not opposed to any heroic measures such as I just described. And some people say, I'm opposed to all of them and please leave me be. If this situation occurs to me, I would like to die in peace. Unplug me, sort of speak, and don't perform any unnecessary treatments on me. This component is the living will, but it, it is only a small part of the mandate. It is not the entire mandate, although the population tends to refer to it as a living will. In French, we call this deed, uh, we used to call them amanda en cas d'inaptitude, and that's really the way it describes. You lose your ability, your aptitude to sign documents and your legal capacity, and somebody else is going to um, make all the decisions for you. So I also want to make a small distinction between a mandate and a will. Because many people speak to me and they are confused and they say, well, I have a will and in my will, I name my child as my executor so he can make the decisions for me. But I, I keep telling them we are talking about two different things. A will only applies after the person dies. Nobody reads whatever you wrote in the will until after you're dead and the will is read. A mandate pertains to the person who is still alive, but is legally incapable, incapacitated. They are not able to make decisions. So nobody goes to look in the will, what the will says. You have to have another document that covers that situation while you're still alive. Who will make those decisions for you? And what would you like to see happen to you? Um, so in the mandate, we cover different scopes of different issues. One of them, of course, is who do we name as the main caregiver, who will make those decisions for us. And I usually suggest to my clients to um, choose at least one or two substitutes in case the first person cannot or refuses to act or God forbid they are incapable themselves or had died, then you have a backup and you don't have to be um, and you don't have to be uh, finding yourself in a situation where there's a void. So I usually uh, suggest a few people. In the mandate, we also make decisions about what kind of uh, decisions, we also make decisions about what kind of decisions we are allowing this person to make for us. Are they decisions about the property? Can that person sell our house? Can that person sell our car? Can that person decide to move us to uh, a residence if they need to? Can that person um, consult with a doctor and do a medical follow-up? Can the person that we name um, uh, be allowed to... Um, withdraw money, to deposit money, to mortgage our house, to downgrade, to upgrade, all those things are things that need to be specifically addressed. Otherwise, the person who makes the decisions, their hands are tied, not do everything and anything that you do to yourself if you are not incapable. Uh, some people ask me if it's a good idea to name one person as the mandatory to the, to the property and another person as the mandatory to the, to the person to make the medical decisions. We do that sometimes in the event that you can consolidate all the jobs within one person. So for example, um, I have a client right now whose children all live out of uh, Canada and she's very sick and uh, she has uh, some assets here. 
and the children cannot act fast enough to uh, help her. So the accountant said that he will be demandatory to the property and he will make sure her property is well managed and well taken care of and her taxes are done and everything is uh, covered. And her children will be demandatory to the person and they will make all the decisions that need to be made for her health and her well-being. So it can be done, but it, it complicates a little bit the, the lives of uh, both the mandatories and of the person because sometimes they have to speak to each other. So the mandatory to the person has to make one decision, but they need the money and the mandatory to the property has to uh, give them that money. So uh, I suggest if you don't have to do it, keep it simple and give the same powers to the same person. And if you can do it, or if we're talking about a big estate and uh, a lot of investments and a lot of uh, property to manage, and you want somebody competent, uh, more competent than your kids, somebody, let's say a bank manager or um, a health, uh, um, wealth investment advisor or a lawyer or a notary to do that, we can do that. Or an accountant, like in my example before, we can split the, the decision-making between two. So what are the mandatory responsibilities? Um, usually the mandatory for the person takes care of the physical and mental uh, care and well-being of the person. For example, uh, about the housing, uh, we, we take into granted that our, our hair, personal hygiene and nails will be done, but it's not obvious that the mandatory to the person will do that. And we have to specify that we want to live in the same standard of living that we've had before and, uh, and to have maintained all of this uh, our hair, our nail, our, our clothes. I have a case that the, the woman is in the residence here in Montreal. Uh, she had a car accident uh, 10 years ago while driving to Toronto. Her husband, who is named her caregiver, the mandatory, lives in Toronto. And in the 10 years she's been in a residence, he came to see her all but three times, something like that. And her son, who is in his 40, is coming to me now that he would like to replace his father because his father does not take care of his mother as well. He brought me picture that his mother is very neglected physically. Her nails are terrible. Her hair is terrible. She's wearing clothes that are either too big for her or too small for her that the residents give her from people who left or, or, or even died because she doesn't have clothes for herself. And that his father is doing a very, very bad job in taking care of her and he would like to replace them. So this is a very important point to mention in the mandate. What would you like to see happen to you if you're incapacitated? Uh, what would you like them to do? If you like to maintain leisure activities, if you like to participate in different outings, in religious services, in family events, all those things we take into details and we account for when we draft the mandate together. And if we do uh, the, the mandate and we're still, um, we're still parents to young minor children, we also can stipulate in the mandate who will be their tutor and legal guardian if you yourself, you're unable to make those decisions and you're not able to raise them. Who is going to raise them? Uh, let's say the, the other parent is either not alive or incapable themselves, who is going to take care of the minor people, the minor children, who is going to make sure that they are well fed, well taken care of, go to school, get all their necessities in life. You have to really make sure that you, you provide for that in the mandate. In addition, uh, in a mandate, if you own a property with somebody, let's say you own a condo or a house with your spouse or your partner, it's not obvious that if something happens to you and you should not be able to live anymore in your home, that uh, they would let your partner, your spouse, and your children, even if you're married, even if you're not married, 
people can come and tell people from the government, like the public curator, and I've seen such a case happen, say, well, uh, you either vacate the house and we're going to sell it so we can take the portion of the money that belongs to the enough person and uh, dedicate it to their care. Because your your partner, your spouse did not specifically provide that they're allowing you and the children to enjoy your property. So if you didn't provide for it specifically, it's not obvious that they would let uh, them use it. And we all know that we want the best if we can provide for our children. Why not let them use our house? Why not let them use our money to pay for the bills that we would have had to pay anyways? If we are in a position to do it, then we should stipulate that in a mandate as well and enable them to do that so that they won't have problems in the future. Uh, another point that we have to uh, address in a mandate is um, in the event that you're incapacitated, uh, we have to go to the court. And the court is going to give a judgment to render you able to take care of the person or not able to take care of the person. Before we go to court, we have to, like I said before, get a medical evaluation that says who is the, the doctor who saw the, the person that's uh, concerned and the degree of their incapacity. So sometimes I will get medical evaluations that say, uh, that person suffered from a stroke, but the damage is only temporary and uh, and it could reverse himself in, uh, in a few weeks and a few months with therapy, with this and that. So it's not permanent damage. So the degree of the, the abilities that we let the tutor or the curator make decisions for you is much less uh, strong and definite because in a few weeks, in a few months, you will be able to recuperate yourself and you don't want to lose all your abilities and all your rights to make decisions for yourself. You want to be able to take those back once the doctor says, okay, now the person has come a long way. I can see that they can walk again. They can talk again. They can make decisions for themselves. Uh, we can revoke the mandate and have the mandate uh, declared uh, revocable by the court and uh, let that that person gain back the ability to make those decisions himself or herself. So uh, if the medical decisions say, on the other hand, that the damage that uh, whatever had is permanent, whether it's Alzheimer or stroke, permanent and definite and total, and there's no way of going back from that, then the degree of care that the tutor will give you is much more stronger. So they will be able to manage many more things without anybody's consent, not your family's consent, not your, um, not your, um, uh, the court's consent, not anybody that uh, that has any say in the situation. Let's say you own a property with somebody else, they would not need the consent of somebody else who owns the property. So if, for example, I live with my partner, but I'm older and I name my son who is uh, 20 to be my mandatory, my son will not need my partner's uh, consent in the house to do anything and everything he needs so he can do in the house whatever he needs to with my share of the house. Um, some people often ask me who can be named as mandatory. And I always tell them you have to pick an adult that you trust because the mandatory will make many decisions about your well-being and the management of your property. So this is a very much trusted position. And you can't name somebody that either uh, is uh, very irresponsible with money or that has no care and uh, is traveling around the world and all that they care about is uh, the next uh uh, show that they have to see or the next uh, something that has to do with their own well-being and will not be there to make decisions for you and for yourself. Uh, also, you have to speak with that person before you choose them and let them know that uh, you would like to sign a mandate and you would like to um, 
uh, name them as the mandatory and see if they will accept this responsibility. And uh, we can also address if you choose to name anybody uh, as your mandatory, whether or not you would like to pay them like a salary of the cert. Uh, usually the tendency is that if you name a relative like your spouse, your children, your sibling, or sometimes even good friends, they do not expect uh, to be paid. Uh, but uh, they do get uh, reimbursed from your money if they had to pay for anything, like if they bought a bed or a chair, or if they had to travel somewhere with you or to see a doctor. Let's say uh, my son is coming in from, from Toronto to see me here in Montreal and take me to the doctor. He can uh, reimburse himself for the flight ticket that he had to pay uh, and the hotel if he has to from my money because he came in a mission to take care of me and to do what I asked. Uh, so some people don't realize that to be a mandatory is very, very time consuming. And uh, it's it's very much like taking care of a baby in some ways. And you have to be very well organized and very well uh, planned in order to make all the decisions. And I had a few people who told me that they were named mandatory to friends uh, mandates who did not have other families and they are not uh, getting paid for it. And they're spending hours and hours and hours trying to tie them over and uh, provide for their care and move into a residence and hire extra help as caregivers. And it's they, they were at the point where they really wanted to quit, but they ended up not quitting because of the moral obligation and duty that we feel to the other person, which is why it's always the, the best way to not only speak to your person, are you going to accept doing that, but make sure with them if they will be all right without being paid or if they expect to be paid, let them give you some kind of a figure. Is it a monthly salary? Is it per hour for every hour that they dedicate to you? They will get paid a certain amount of money. Is it at the end of the year? Uh, or uh, is it just for reimbursements of the expenses that they, they've had that, that uh, correlate to taking care of you and making the decisions for you? Uh, the mandatory's responsibility is to ensure that all of your care is making is taken care of, which means your physical care and your property, uh, and to consent to healthcare. Um, to the extent that you allow them. So if, for example, you decided to not speak about your living will, and I know many people who decide to not speak about it, they will not be able to make all the decisions for you. The doctors will not make them uh, make some decisions for them because you ignored it, you decided to leave it in the void, and they cannot assume that responsibility. However, if your mandate says, I do not want to deal with this now, and I trust my mandatory fully to make the right decision when the time comes along, then the doctors will let them make the decision. So it's really all about the drafting and how you appropriate the terminology to fit you best. Um, also, they uh, have to the right to represent you and act on your behalf in legal matters. So if somebody sues you in small claims court or uh, if Revenue Quebec wants some information for you, your mandatory has the responsibility to step into your shoes and make the case for you and represent you uh, in, uh, in that, um, those events, in that property. So uh, the management of the property includes uh, paying your debts, credit card uh, information, if you have uh, mortgages, if you have car payments, if you need to return the car, if you need to uh, uh, 
receive pensions, disability benefits, social uh, assistance, uh, pay your hydro bill, pay your credit card, pay your condo fees, make any investments because the money can sit there for years and years. And we, we want to make sure that the money is useful and not just lying there in an account uh, that is uh, not generating any interest that we can be um, we can be enjoying for the benefit of the person. Uh, the mandatory can also collect money that anybody owes that person and uh, do anything they have to do in order to make sure that everything is covered. So even if something was not there and it pops out, uh, for example, um, somebody's putting a lien on your property, you are not able to make decisions anymore. You are not able to, to speak. It's just like a minor child. The parents have to speak for them. In this case, the minor, the, the incapacitated person is also going to be represented by their mandatory. Um, many people are very concerned about how they can reduce the risk of abuse by the mandatory. We hear terrible stories on the news today. Uh, sometimes it's children who do that to their parents, uh, very sadly. Sometimes it's spouses, sometimes it's other people. Uh, you have to make sure that the person you, you choose will reduce the risk of abuse uh, by the mandatory. And how do you do that? You have to put different safeguards uh, for example, if you allow that person to sell the property, you can say, I, I will allow selling the property, but only if um, somebody else will be um, watching over that process and will also approve. So, so for example, uh, in my example from before, I said I gave my son who is 20 the ability to make that decision. And my son decides, okay, my mom doesn't live anymore in the house, she lives in a residence, let's sell her house so we can use some of the money for caregivers and for her care. Uh, but let's say I wasn't sure that he will make the right decision. So I provided in the mandate, you know what, if he says he wants to sell it, let him ask also my sister. I want my sister to weigh in. And if my sister thinks it's a good idea, they can then go ahead and sell my property. So you have to come up with different creative mechanisms uh, to make sure that, um, that there's no abuse. Uh, another mechanism like that is to provide an annual report of the management of your property to another person that you trust. So like in the example of my son, if I don't trust him fully to be able to make the decisions because maybe he's too young and not mature enough, I will tell him, you know, whatever you do at the end of the year, you have to give accounts or as, as not, not necessarily at the end of the year, if you need decisions as they go along, you have to give accounts to my sister please contact my sister and have her look at whatever you do and let my sister decide if uh, you cannot decide for something, she will help you make that decision. Uh, a good tool for you to make sure that the mandatory reduces the risk of abuse is to always make an inventory. You should demand that your mandatory make an inventory, which is a list of all, all your property that you had as soon as you were declared incapacitated by the court. So you actually make the mandatory write down on this date, October 14th, when the Superior Court of Montreal rendered my mother incapable, my mother owned one bank account at the Royal Bank account number with X amount of dollars. Two, bank account with BMO, uh, X amount of dollars. C, uh, three, uh, RRSPs in the amount of this. My mom owned a condo at this address that's worth today this. So that way, at the end of the year, when they have to render account, to a family member or even to the public curator, you can see what was done with the money in that year and how that money will serve in your benefit. Because we've heard terrible, terrible stories and I've seen many, many cases like that where the person uh, who was in charge with the, 
the incapacitated person's uh, welfare and property, took the money, went around the world, bought himself a yak, renovated the house, did some things that bought the house, sold the house, everything for themselves and nothing for the person concerned, and they left them destitute. I have a case that I dealt with where the son uh, stole money from his mother and left her here at the mercy of the government and her her daughter-in-law, that's uh, the, the widow of her other son, uh, had to take care of her and and uh, make provide for her well-being and just supplement because he left her. He basically left her with eight hundred dollars in the bank account and she had nothing. And that was a woman that before that had a lot of money. So make sure that you are risking, you are reducing the risk of abuse. You always have to make sure that you put enough safeguards. And the only way you'll know about the safeguards is if you um, consult with a professional. A notary is an expert on those matters. Lawyers also sometimes can um, can help you with that. And they also do uh, mandates sometimes as well. Uh, can you change your mandate? You must ask, well, if I do this now and then I change my mind, what happens then? So as long as you're not incapacitated and as long as the doctor did not say that you lost your ability to make decisions, you can either draft an amendment, you can revoke it completely and make a new one, or you can change some, some things. But if you are declaring capacitated, it's too late and nothing can be done. You just have to homologate it the way it was and um, hope that the mechanism you chose before are going to be respected by everybody. Some people also ask me that they know of situation where the mandatory was doing a very bad job or not doing the job very well uh, at all. Like the in the case of the mandatory buying himself ticket around the world and leaving the, the family member here uh, at the mercy of, um, of the hospital and of the daughter-in-law, they didn't do anything at all, even though they were named mandatory. So what can what can people around it do? So usually the public curator often will launch an investigation to take the steps necessary to ensure what happened and how they can recover the case. I was working uh, on a case as a, as a counsel. Um, this is a case that was litigated uh, in recent weeks in the courts. And uh, there was an older person who inherited a lot of money from the parents who died. And that person has no ability, he has the mental ability of a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old who cannot manage a lot of money. He went into the house of his brother and sister-in-law, and they had him sign a mandate in case of incapacity, even though they knew he wasn't able to understand what he's signing. And in the mandate, they gave him the powers to make all the decisions. And what they did, instead of making sure he's well-fed and well-taken care of, they charge him for room and board, which could be okay in a regular circumstance. But in addition, they went and they contracted loans they, they to remortgage uh, uh, their kids' houses and to give them the kids their kids money. People that have nothing to do with whoever was named to be his mandatory and the caregiver. And when the nieces of that person, nieces from another sibling, found out, they took them to court and they said that they are abusing their uncle and they wanted the court to revoke that mandate so that they can. Uh, step up with the public curator, launch an investigation, and they were at the end of it uh, named the mandatory to the person to be able to make decisions about their uncle's health. And the public curator said that until they finish the investigation and they uh, they finish uh, recuperating the money that was stolen from him, they will handle his property until that point. Uh, 
it will take a few years until they finish it. But once they will finish, they will relinquish that ability to another family member who is obviously not the brother and the sister-in-law who took advantage of him terribly. So uh, it is also possible to ask the court to dismiss the mandatory if we think that, that they are doing a bad situation. So this is a... Uh, Another example of what those nieces did, they asked the court, dismissed that mandatory from their position and uh, look at what a bad job they did. They proved that he, they stole a lot of money from him and, um, and they wanted them to be dismissed. But because the person lost the ability, nobody can dismiss them except for the court. We are not able to make those decisions for somebody else. And if the person uh, did not name a replacement in their mandate, or if the replacement cannot do it or refuses or uh, dies, for example, then the court can cancel the mandate and put into place a protective supervision regime, which is more or less the same. But instead of you choosing who will take care of you, your family has to constitute a tutorship council uh, from different family members and friends, and they will have to decide together who will be the best person to, uh, to make those decisions for you. And the tutorship council will always survey and supervise whatever that person does so that you have extra mechanism. It's, uh, it's called protective supervision of an incapacitated person. And this process takes uh, a little bit uh, longer because we have a few extra steps, but it can also be in the best interest of a person who did not sign a mandate. Uh, when does the mandate end? Usually a mandate at either at the end of the incapacity. So in my example before, when I told you that the, the person's the, um, situation was um, temporary, once the doctor established that the person regained their ability to make decisions, the mandate can end. Or upon the death of the incapacitated person, if that person dies, that's it. Then we move on to the will. You cannot act upon a person who is not alive uh, on their behalf. And the mandate can also come to an end if for any reason, the mandatory, the person that we chose either quits, he dies, he or she dies, they become incapacitated, they declare bankruptcy because it's very dangerous to allow somebody who declared bankruptcy to manage somebody else's property and make decisions for them. Uh, if the court dismissed them like we discussed before, and uh, in the event that uh, uh, a family member thinks that he shouldn't act anymore because of uh, the public curator may say with the family, they, they abuse their powers and we do not want them to act anymore. Then you go to a judge and the judge can uh, declare that void and put in place instead a protective supervision regime. Um, so the mandate comes into effect not automatically. It's not like a will when you die and you do a will search and the will comes out in the search and you start acting upon it uh, if it's an Ontario will. Uh, the mandate has to come after a procedure called homologation, which is a long procedure that you do together with uh, a family member. So let's say if I name my son, my son will start this procedure and will, he will come to me with a medical evaluation. And then a social worker has to meet with you and with the family members and decide whether or not uh, he, my son, is the right person to make decisions for me and whether or not the family will be active in the management and whether or not some people have objections and what kind of a scope of information uh, the family needs to deal with. And the social evaluation and the doctor's uh, report help me start my procedure for the homologation. And I then go ahead and I meet with the person, even if they don't understand what I'm asking, I must meet with them on behalf of the court. And I must interview them to show the court the extent of their capacity or incapacity. So for example, sometimes I meet people and I ask them what they 
of the week are we? And they will tell me blue and I have to take down a record and I have to write. The question was, what day of the week is it? The answer was blue. I asked the person, what was their name? They told me uh, pink. I asked the person, what date are, uh, who is the president? They told me uh, lady. Whatever they say, if they tell me uh, the president of the United States is Trump, and if they tell me today is October 14th and we're Wednesday, I also write it down because remember, sometimes their, their incapacity is only partial and they need help in some aspect, but not in all aspects. So I don't expect them all to give me the wrong answer. Some stuff they do know, it depends on the degree of the incapacity that they have. Some people are more gone and some people are more present. I write down whatever they say, and then I have to submit that to the court as well. And at the end of the day, I, sub I take all my file and I analyze it and I see if it's really in the best person, in the best uh, interest of the person to homologate the mandate and name the person they decided. Sometimes I heard of cases where people, uh, notaries decided it's not in the best interest to choose the son because of different reasons. Uh, let's choose another family member, maybe the daughter, maybe the sister, maybe the brother, somebody else is better. But usually, usually if we name somebody in a mandate and that person is able to do the job and is apt medically and legally apt, they will be the person that will make those decisions for us. Uh, briefly, that was my survey of a mandate. There is something coming up in the chat right now. Yes, I see here. My name is Diane. Can you please clarify the homologation procedure? Yes, I would love to explain to you that again. Uh, just before, if you didn't hear me and you would like to hear this lecture again, I'm giving a similar lecture on the 29th. Call my office afterwards and I'll give you the details and you can log into uh, the other lecture if you want to hear similar, but it covers different topics in addition to mandate. So the homologation procedure is as follows. Um, first of all, a doctor has to declare you incapable of making decisions. It's not my decisions and it's not your decisions and it's not your family's decisions. It's only a doctor who has to declare you. Some doctors uh, say like physicians, family physicians who've known you, they write me those uh, evaluations. Others say, you know what? I'm not sure how to do it. Let me send you to the geriatric uh, clinic. Let me send you a specialist, a neurologist, a psychologist, some uh, a psychiatrist, I'm sorry, not psychologist. And we have to have a doctor sign on the evaluation saying that you are incapable. The medical evaluation should say, what do you have? For example, let's say Alzheimer. And when did you start having it? Maybe they will say 2017 and now we're 2020. So it's very progressed. And at the end of it, they have to say whether it's permanent or in total or temporary and partial. So if I have dementia from 2017 and I'm far gone, I expect the doctor to write that the, the diagnostics is permanent and total and there's no going back. We cannot reverse the, the signature. With those medical evaluations, we need to move on to the next step and get the family to hire a social worker to do the psychosocial evaluations. Not every social worker does that. Only a few of them specializes in this domain. And the CLSC do not do that, even if the person that you are uh, talking about has a CLSC caseworker, the CLSC is overloaded and they do not offer uh, medical evaluations. The family will usually have to hire a private social worker to do those evaluations. The social worker will meet with the person, will meet with the family, and she will compile, she or he will compile their report and their evaluations, and they will uh, spread out over six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 pages 
what are their conclusions? They will say, I read the doctor's report and the doctor said this. I met with the person, I met with the family, and I think that the person cannot make decisions. And I think that the family member that they chose in the mandate will be the one to make decisions for them. I suggest to homologate the mandate and to give them the ability to make those decisions, decisions both about the health and decisions about the property. Uh, with that, they then come to see a notary. Not all notaries are accredited to do procedures before notaries. Uh, we have to take a two-day course uh, to be accredited with social workers and with uh, with other professionals. And at the end of it, the Chambre de Notaire, which is our professional orders, have to give us a certificate. Um, for example, I'm certified and I do a lot of procedures with the family. They come to me and I start the file, which means I compile the evidence, the doctor's note, the social worker's evaluation. I then will meet with the family. I will draft a request for the family member who is going to be named as the tutor or the curator. They will have to sign it. We will sometimes have to notify this uh, other family members like children, like siblings, like spouse, like uh, neighbors, like friends. And then we open a file at court. At the end of it, after I meet with the person and I draft my conclusions, I just sit down and I draft my conclusion. The, the doctor wrote the evaluation on that day. The social worker wrote the evaluation on this date. I met the person on this date. The family met with me on that date. And together we decided that the person is no longer able to make decisions. And we would like to ask the court to give judgment to the son to be able to make all the decisions from them. Those are my conclusions. And then we submit that conclusion to court. And now it's the court's job to go through all my file and basically to either give me the judgment right away and say, yes, uh, whatever the notary did is a good job. I'm giving the judgment. And now I'm naming the son as the, the curator to the person and to the property or the tutor to the, to the person and to the property. Or the court can tell me, uh, listen, notary, you wrote me this and I don't understand why you mean or what the family means by that. Can you please explain? And then I will get a notice from the court. Please explain the following one, two, three, four. And I will have to come back with them with explanations. And only after my explanations, the court will give the judgment. This procedure takes time. It takes about four to five months, sometimes six. And now with COVID and the delays that happened in court because the delays, the legal delays were frozen until the beginning of September. Um, it could take more. We don't know how long, how much longer. I just submitted two files uh, in the past few weeks for judgment and I'm waiting for the judge to get back to me. I don't know what to tell in terms of time, but it, it does take time. I hope that was clear. And if not, please write us in the chat what else uh, you would like me to answer and address. Uh, thank you, Liad, for explaining that this can be a lengthy process, especially uh, during COVID. Can you give us an idea of the cost? I'm sure it varies, but if people are wondering yes. what kind yeah. of uh, monetary figure do I attribute to something like this? So there are two ways of doing a homologation procedure. One is before the notary and one is before the court. Before the court is a lot cheaper, but then you are at the mercy of the court and all the steps that I do and I enter in my calendar, if I know that the legal delays after I open the file are 10 days, on the 10th day, I start doing my next step and so forth. So I act faster. If you open the, the court file and you leave it to the court, you never know when they will uh, go to the next step and it could take longer. So most of my clients prefer to do the procedure before the notary and the fees there are different because the fees there are by the hour. For every hour I dedicate to the file, I charge by the hour. 
plus the fees, the disbursements. I have to open a court file. There are fees for that. I have to send a bailiff to notify the person who's concerned twice because that's the only way to communicate with them, even if they don't understand. So all the fees that accumulate in the file, I have to charge back to, to the family. And um, I usually work on those cases around 10 hours, give or take. Sometimes I work eight hours, sometimes I work 12 hours. It depends on the complexity of the case and how cooperative the family members are and what steps we have to do. And at the end of the day, if the judge thought everything was clear, then it's faster. But if they will send me a note, please clarify this or that, then it will be um, longer because then I will have to come back and come back with more explanations and I will have to dedicate more time to the file. Thank you, Liat. Uh, I'd also like to um, point out that Diane in the chat said that your explanation was very clear. So she appreciated that. Oh, uh, Liat, I see it now. Sorry, I hadn't seen yes. it either. The question is from Veronica. Can you stipulate that mandatory must undergo an evaluation before homologation of their soundness she's referring to? Well, I'm not sure, Veronica, if you mean the mandatory is the person who is going to take care of you. Oh, no, no, you cannot do that. I mean, if it's obvious for people in your family that they're not of sound mind, the family will come and tell the notary or the, the, the court, that person is not of sound mind, we have to move on. Or they will tell that to the social worker and the social worker will check it. But you cannot, um, you cannot uh, have them go a medical evaluation or a psychological evaluation to check their soundness. Liat, have you seen an increase of uh, these requests during COVID? Are more people asking for this? Well, yes and no. I had a lot of requests during COVID, but for a long time, because of all the legal freezing delays, we were not able to do anything. And I only started acting upon it. And families also, because of lockdowns and residents, um, I only started really working on, on several files at the same time in September when they lifted the legal delays. Um, so for a long time, we did not know how to interview the people. I usually go in person and I still do um, hospital visits and, uh, and you know home visits, but in residence, now they are putting some kind of lockdown measures in some residents, but others were completely closed for months and months at the time. And we started doing the evaluation, both me and the social worker online on platforms like Zoom, like um, uh, FaceTime, things like that. And we have to write to the judge, why did we decide to use this platform and not to go in person? And we, we assume there's not going to be um, a problem accepting it because uh, of the situation of the pandemic. So right now I have, um, I think, five cases at the same time of homologation. Thank you, uh, Liat. Have you seen, um, have you had other increases in your work? Have you had more weddings, more <laughs> other types uh, of work coming at you? Because yeah, of COVID? well, uh, yes, I did have a, a few weddings this summer. Um, some celebrated here at my office very intimately and some celebrated uh, in people's backyards with a, a little bit of family when it was allowed. I also had a few divorces which uh, may be a byproduct of the COVID, I don't know. Uh, if, if a divorce is done in agreement by both parties about everything, including if they have minor children, child support, notaries can help them with drafting the request and submitting to court. Uh, what I did see a lot of increase during the time of the COVID and the lockdown is people finally taking the time to review their documents and signing mandates 
and wills and the advanced medical directives. So I've had many, many um, sessions with clients at the I, I offer if, if they want um, if they want um, uh, the first meeting to be on Zoom, I offer them Zoom sessions and then I draft everything. I work remotely with them if, if they can. And then for the signature, we meet in person. But for those people who cannot work, I have a lot of elderly clients, clients who do not hear well, clients who do not work with internet, then they, they still can come to my office and we do it very safely. I've been working since day two of the pandemic because day one, they forgot to add legal services to the essential services. So our office was closed for a day and a half. And as soon as they added it, uh, we've been here providing services, meeting people very safely, either at our office or even uh, downstairs in the parking lot or in the lobby. If people didn't want to take the elevator, we've been helping them uh, or going to their houses or residents or hospitals, just helping them um, make sure that their wills and mandates are signed and they are they have at least the peace of mind for that. Thank you, Liat. It's it's encouraging to hear that people can still get the services that they need. Yes. I'm seeing something else that just appeared in the chat from Diane. Yes. Uh, yes. It is sometimes I hear a term probate. Does it have to do with mandates or wills? So usually a probate means for a will. There are three kinds of wills in Quebec. All are legal and all are acceptable. There's a holograph will, which you write by, by your hand, handwritten will. You write the date, you write what you want, and you sign it. There's a will before two witnesses. You write what you want. You take two witnesses to sign with you that they, uh, they attest that you signed this will in front of them. And there's the notarial will. If you have one of the first two wills, either you handwritten them or you had it with witnesses. And by the way, doing a will with a lawyer in Quebec is just like doing a will before witnesses. You need to probate the will after the person dies. That means that unless and until you get a judgment from court saying that this will is indeed the last will of the person and that the handwriting correspond and the wishes were were uh, really the wishes that reflected uh, by the, the deceased, um, you cannot do anything. All the estate, bank accounts, everything, everything is frozen. So that is also a very lengthy procedure that can take sometimes four or five months. And uh, people don't understand that until the probate is given and a judgment is rendered, the state is completely frozen and you can't do anything. You cannot pay bills. You cannot uh, withdraw money. You cannot touch anything. Nobody will let you do anything. Um, if it's a mandate and you, if you did it, uh, sorry, with a, a notary, once you uh, the person dies and you do a will search, and you get the death certificate, the notarial will starts uh that's being valid right away. In Quebec, you don't need to do any probate or anything else. The fact that the notary signed the will with you uh, is equivalent to a decision by the court, a probate, and uh, you can start acting right away. If you have done a mandate with a notary, um, the, the process will be faster for the homologation and there won't be the aspect of the probate for the mandate. But if you sign a mandate by yourself, if you found a form online or you sign it by yourself, there will be an additional step to not exactly probate, but verify that really it's you who signed this mandate and it's you who wanted this and that to happen. So there's an additional um, uh, step or a few steps to, to take uh, care of. And then we go to the homologation procedure. So it's a little bit longer and more expensive, obviously. So Liat, because I know that a few people in our community have children or other family members that are living in the United States, do you deal uh, with people who have, uh, you know, family members who have wills who live in the States? Yes. So I deal with many people 
um, who have family in the States. So if, like right now, I have a case, a woman is incapacitated. I just received the medical evaluation. The son that she chose, she has four children. Three live here in Montreal. And the son that she named the first one lives in the States. So I'm in constant communications with him because he will be the one who's requesting to homologate his mother's mandate. And at the end of the day, he will be making all the decisions for her. Uh, it's doable. There will be a few more steps that, uh, for example, I draft um, the request. And instead of him coming here and signing it here at my office, he will have to go to see a lawyer there and sign it there and then FedEx it to me because I need the original. But it's very doable. However, for a will, I do not recommend choosing children who live outside of Canada. And it doesn't matter where they live in Canada, as long as they live inside Canada anywhere. And it doesn't matter also that they're Canadian citizens. Most of our children are Canadian citizens, but the moment they stop living inside Canada for tax purposes and they have employment outside of Canada and their center of life is outside of Canada, I do not recommend to name them as the liquidator, as the executor of your will. Because if you do name somebody who doesn't live in Canada, there, there's going to be a very heavy tax implication on your estate that Revenue Quebec and Revenue Canada is going to um, tax. It could be sometimes up to uh, 50%. It's some, somewhere around 47%. So it's a shame that after you've worked all your life and um, and saved that money and pay taxes, you will be taxed or your estate will be taxed again. So in those cases, uh, those clients sometimes prefer either choosing a family friend or uh, their children's family friend who live here or even paying a professional like an accountant, a lawyer, a notary to be a professional liquidator of the estate, it will be cheaper than paying 47% taxes to the government. So I'm named in many wills uh, as the professional liquidator. And my husband is a lawyer. He's also uh, named in some wills. And uh, I'm also named in some mandates as a replacement mandatory. So if the children can do it, or if they don't have children, they chose me as the secondary person to make decisions, both about their health and about their property, because they trust that the notary would know what they're doing, be able to make good decisions and uh, be very responsible financially for their decisions. Okay, thank you, Liat. So just to be clear, if you have children that live in the States, if you have only one child and that child lives in the States, it would be preferable to have a liquidator like yourself or another notary in Canada uh, to avoid the, the tax uh, penalties. Yes, and to confirm that, they should always speak with their accountant just to make sure because um, um, sometimes they say that uh, there's maybe a, a hidden agenda behind what I'm telling them, but if they check it with the government or with um, an accountant, they'll be able to ascertain. Okay, Liat, I believe I have it. I can go back to my email, or if you want to just provide it now, because you said you would provide your office number and people are yes, asking for it. Absolutely. So my office number, I'll write it also in the chat, is 514 852-5707. Okay, thank you so much, Liat, for your time and for all the information you provided. I think it was very helpful and I, I'm certain everyone appreciate, appreciates you doing this with us today. Thank you. And uh, if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to contact me. Thank you, Liat. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end 
of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, People could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. Uh, One of the things that we did was uh, set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, And of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.